Hello, you're listening to In On The Act with Sarah Jackman. Today, I'm joined by Guy Featherstone-Hall Casey, barrister at Falcon Chambers and regular EG columnist to discuss the legislative highlights of 2023. Guy, thank you very much for joining me today and rounding up on just a few of the legislative developments from the past 12 months. Um, had another busy year and there's a lot to choose from by way of legislative developments of 2023, ranging from procurement and arbitration to energy and economic crime. But we've identified five key legislative themes that we're going to look at today. The first is a hugely significant piece of legislation that was enacted in 2022, but which continues to make its presence felt, not least through secondary legislation. It is, of course, the Building Safety Act 2022, um, a huge, huge piece of legislation. What's your sense of the impact of that act and and where we are currently with it? It's huge, Sarah. It's absolutely huge. Well, first of all, the legislation is huge. There are 170 sections, 11 schedules, dozens of statutory instruments. We've got 19 so far. Um, With modern legislation, you you do tend to find that the devil is in the detail, but there are at least some themes emerging. I mean, one problem is how do you get dangerous buildings sorted out? And the second problem is who's going to pay for it? And the 2022 Act deals with both those things. And by the way, so rather excitingly, the first big case in the upper tribunal although in the end, the tribunal had to reconstitute it itself as the first tier tribunal for process reasons, which in themselves are quite amusing. Um, but the first big case in front of the president of the upper tribunal, Mr. Justice Edwin Johnson, um, and I think the, the deputy president was heard last month with a number of members of these chambers and others. And Um, The main issue for the tribunal to consider was um, whether it was premature to allocate responsibility for the cost of some remedial works to a big block in Stratford in circumstances where it wasn't entirely clear who should be primarily culpable, the developer or the managing agent. Now, judgment hasn't yet been delivered, but argument has been completed. And that'll be fascinating because that's a very early example of the court, in this case, the tribunal, being asked to deal with some complex issues arising under the Act. So basically what the Act did was to render personally liable for any failure to comply with the Act, um, various classes of people. And it operates by imposing on the building owner or what it calls the principal accountable person, um, an obligation to apply for a building assessment certificate for a registered building. And these are all, of course, defined terms in the Act. So as soon as the regulator under the Act says to a building owner, um, you must now apply for a certificate, off it goes. And the certificate will only be granted if the regulator is satisfied that the owner is complying with a bunch of duties and they are to assess and manage building safety risks and so on and so forth. 
And the person in question who was responsible for all this must also record and update certain prescribed information about the building. So uh, that's um, one means of the government really getting to grips with making people comply and sort out building safety. And then on the who pays for this side, and this has been one of the most contentious areas of the legislation, the, the building owner can't recover the costs of remedial works to improve safety if it was the cause of the defect. And then there are a whole lot of other enforcement provisions entitling those with an interest in the building. So typically a lessee of a flat or a public authority to seek an order of the first tier tribunal, not merely to require works to be undertaken, but also to sort out who's going to pay for them. So it's a vast piece of work. It needed to be a vast piece of work to tackle what was a formidable problem. And it's been quite interesting. We we wrote for EG uh, a week or two back, Sarah, a bunch of us here wrote an article about the way in which England was approaching this problem compared to what was going on in Scotland, which takes quite a different approach. So it's required some legislative ingenuity to sort all this out. And it's still playing out um, here, and I suspect it'll continue to play out really for a very long time. Which I guess leads me on to my next question, which is in relation to next year. I mean, in terms of how you expect it to play out and, and develop over, say, the coming 12 months, do you anticipate seeing that body of case law starting to build over the next year? Yeah, very much so. And it'll be the first tier tribunal, which will be primarily in the firing line. Um, uh, there are there are a few of these cases already, and I think they'll slowly build. I mean, they'll particularly build in the light of the um, the judgment in the, the case I've mentioned. So, yes, I, th- I think that there will be a great deal of these cases because they'll all involve different nuances under the Act, Mm -hmm. you know, tackling different provisions. And gosh, there are very many of them. Yeah. Okay. Turning now to something slightly different, residential reform, another area of huge importance and which has had an awful lot of publicity over the last 12 months. We've got two bills currently in Parliament. We've got the Renters' Reform Bill, which was introduced slightly earlier on this year. And more recently, we've had the Leasehold and Freehold Reform Bill. We also have a new consultation on ground rents, which is currently open. What's your sense of what's going on in the residential space at the moment? (laughs) Again, Sarah, an awful lot. So renters reform bill, um, like many of these um, bits of legislation, Sarah, some of them look like old news. And that's because in most cases they are. And this is a a good example. This was a bill that was promised in the Conservatives 2019 election manifesto when, if you remember the name, Theresa May was prime minister. And the aim was to, among other things, to end the right of landlords in England to evict short-hold tenants without needing a reason, which is something landlords can do under Section 21 of the Housing Act 1988. Um, Those of us who are long in this game will remember that the Housing Act 88 was brought in as an answer to the Rent Act 1977, under which 
it, it, that was seen to be a clog on the housing market because many landlords were terrified of letting their property because they were then subjected to tenants whom they found impossible to get rid of. So the Housing Act 88 was a pioneering piece of legislation that, that was introduced under the Thatcher government. And now we've come full circle with people calling for, uh, and the Conservatives indeed, calling for all of that to be reformed. Now, so it was introduced eventually, this new Renters Reform Bill, and debated in the Commons for the first time this month, having been introduced into the Commons as a draft bill in May 2023. So as, as I've said, it abolishes fixed term assured tenancies and introduces a new ombudsman to hear private complaints. And um, the, the net effect of getting rid of no-fault eviction has been that in order for a landlord to recover possession of its property, it needs to satisfy a ground. And merely saying, I want you out, tenant, is no longer going to be good enough. Now, the bill has introduced quite, quite a few changes to the grounds for possession. So one now will be repeated serious rent arrears. But there are lots of other things to, to bear in mind. Now, all of this was going to be fairly imminent until Michael Gove the other day said, actually, we won't be introducing that aspect of the renters reform bill until the courts have been reformed in order to deal with the burden of what looks like many possession claims. And that has caused a huge amount of disappointment in the market, not least among those who were saying it's it's a trumped up charge. You know, of course, the courts could deal with possession claims. That's what they've been doing for years. But anyway, it does seem for good reason or bad that the government has slowed down or diluted that aspect of the renters reform bill. There, there's some other good stuff in it. Um, there's a proposal for rent control in respect of above market rent increases. Um, there's a, a particular provision which a lot of people will welcome saying you cannot have a blanket prohibition on pets in your leasehold properties. Uh, a landlord should only be able to refuse pets on reasonable grounds. And I've got a lot of friends who've got dogs who think that'll be quite heroic. So it, it's not just about abolishing no-fault eviction. It's got lots of other aspects to it. So that, that'll be a good one to watch. And I suppose just picking up on the more recent announcements in relation to the leasehold and freehold reform bill um, and also the consultation on ground rents. I mean, one of the most eye-catching proposals currently being consulted on is the suggestion that all existing ground rents should be capped at peppercorn. That obviously has significant implications. What, what are your thoughts in relation to that? Very, very mixed. Uh, it, it's one thing saying from henceforth, landlords, um, you can't take a, a valuable ground rent anymore from tenants. You know, that's one thing we all understand that that is a suitable reaction to the absurdity that we saw in the past of accelerating ground rent review provisions with people having to pay a you know, millions of pounds um, for, for their leasehold flats. But it's quite another thing to say we've got existing arrangements where under uh, modest ground rents are paid, you know, the order of a couple of hundred quid a year. And, and to say to landlords, you can no longer charge that. And that's viewed by those in this sector as uh, an unlawful appropriation of quite a valuable asset. 
I don't know how that's going to play out, Sarah. I mean, there, there are big voices on both sides of the equation. For, for myself, I don't see why the government really wants to go into those choppy waters. I think um, there, there is much in the, the current leasehold reform bill that I, I think is great. I mean, for example, things like saying instead of just getting a 90 year um, extension for your lease, you'll be able to get a 990 year extension. So something pretty similar to a freehold. Uh, there's also the abolition of the qualifying requirement for a leaseholder to have owned a house or flat for two years before they can extend their lease in mixed use buildings. Um, the government's proposing to increase the threshold from 25% to 50% for the maximum amount of non-residential parts of a qualifying building. There's something that I personally like very much, which is replacing building insurance commissions with administration fees, because that's long been the bane of many people. Um, and an extension of rights currently held by leaseholders to freehold owners on estates to challenge the reasonableness of estate management charges. So lots of good stuff there. And if you introduce something else that's eye-catching, like this proposal to abolish ground rents for existing arrangements, I think you may well rob the good parts of, of this, but, but let's wait and see. So lots there on the residential side to keep an eye on. And I suppose one of the questions will be whether those bills will progress in in the time frame um, given the, the looming election. So I suppose something um, to keep an eye on there. One thing I know that we were going to just touch on briefly, um, but probably ought to flag, is that the levelling up and regeneration bill was given royal assent a few months ago. So that is now an act. Um, the majority of the implications that flow from it are planning related, but one um, slightly controversial measure that affects landlords is the ability now for local authorities to auction off empty properties and compel landlords to grant a lease to the successful bidder. Um, can you remind our listeners just briefly perhaps about the background to that um, and whether, I guess, in practice, that's something that we anticipate local authorities will put resources into implementing so th this is one of those ideas that I think sounds great in principle, um, especially with lockdown and all the rest of it. We've all become used to seeing gaps in the high street with stores that closed down three years ago and look like they're never going to reopen. And there may be all sorts of reasons for for that, you know, some economic, some social. And the proposal in the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act looked look really sensible against that background. So a local, local authority would be able to wade in and say, look, something's got to be done. If you just leave it up to the owner of the building to sort this out and regenerate the high street, it's plain that nothing's been done and nothing may be done. So local authority can then step in and stir things up. M my reservation is, is the consequences game. You know, be careful what you wish for. And there are two aspects of this that I'm troubled about. One is there may well be a very good reason why the store or the restaurant, whatever it might be, has been closed. And local authorities who weighed in 
and start auctioning off the property may well find that further down the track up pops somebody who then mounts a challenge. So all you end up with in the end is litigation. And my other problem is, I mean, I'm I'm a believer in the free market. And if there are dead areas of the high street, um, I'm uh, I'm rather more in favour of the market sorting that out rather than local authorities wading in. But then, you know, lots of people would disagree with me and come up with lots of examples where planning has been used to affect valuable change in the world. So let's wait and see. It's a good idea. All right. Um, something else with a connection to local authorities um, is the minimum energy efficiency standards. We had a new set of regulations in April and local authorities are now empowered to issue financial penalties to landlords who continue to let F or G rated properties. Um, what's your sense of how that is evolving and what what do you see in terms of your client base and how landlords are getting to grips with energy efficiency? Again, Sarah, this is an enormous problem in practice. And I saw some research in your journal about just what swathes of cities in, in the UK the Mies will affect. You know, it, it's thought that there are hundreds and thousands of properties which which are substandard, which will require a huge amount of work to be done to them in order for them to comply with the current ratings. And um, so something uh, needs to be done for all those. And Mies is thought to be the means by which people will be forced to comply. I'm unimpressed by the enforcement provisions in the legislation. I think, again, it was your journal, Sarah, which valuably um, carried out a poll of local authorities and found out how many fines had been levied. And I think it was one for Kensington and Chelsea, none in West. I mean, I, they've got the facts wrong, but a fantastically low level of charge. Uh, I'd be really interested, actually, with finding out um, why it is that local authority is being so slow on this, because it's not as if uh, there are not cases out there that need to be penalised. Uh, I'm Again, I'm quite wary about all of this. Mies gives us enough problems anyway, and speaking as a lawyer here, when it comes to great areas of what I do, lease renewal, rent review, dilapidations, you know, the problems of working through the Mies hypothesis in all those scenarios is absolutely immense before you get to enforcement. With enforcement, um, again, you know, it's the, 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 leap, the loopholes start leaping out of you before you go very far with Mies. There are lots and lots of exemptions from Mies. You know, for example, if it will just cost so much to implement the the requisite works that you, you, you know, they outweigh the value of your property. There are lots and lots of things like that. And I imagine that the um, advices um, out there for landlords are working overtime to try and um, sort out their problems rather than getting works done. So um, I, I, again, it's one of those, let's wait and see and watch carefully to see what the market is is doing with all this. Yeah. And so one final topic to touch on today um 
it's been a stalwart, I guess, of, of property law, landlord and tenant law for many, many years. That's the 1954 Act. Um, and again, this year, it's loomed large. We've had a number of interesting 54 Act cases, including Avondale Park, Gill and B&M Retail. Um, and I guess the other aspect is that the Law Commission has announced that they intend to consult on the Act. Tell me a little bit about why there continue to be so many cases involving the Act. It's it's a well-established piece of legislation, yet we continue to see these cases. Um, and I guess, um, given those cases and the fact that they do keep evolving and determining new points of law, um, is there that case for reform? <laughs> Sorry, you know, this is my favourite. <laughs> Uh, my the, the drum I bang with the 54 Act is, for heaven's sake, make it compulsory for disputes to go off to arbitration. In other words, use use packed professional arbitration on court terms, uh, because I think it is too much to expect the overloaded county court, uh, or in some cases the first tier tribunal, to deal with what are actually very, very complex cases involving opposed renewals and even the unopposed renewals where there may be really, really difficult rental disputes. And to resolve those, it is so much easier if you're immersed in the market because then you can spot a wheeze when you see one. And of course, the people who can do that are experts and arbitrators with a, a property and valuation background. So, my first plea to the Law Commission, I know it's pre-consulting at the moment, is please use this opportunity to make pact compulsory. I, I don't know why it ducked that opportunity, sorry, not the Law Commission, the government, um, last time around when the 54 Act was amended. So that would be my, my big ticket item. Uh, quite apart from that, I think there are areas where previous amendments have just made life more complex. As a piece of drafting, the original 1954 Act was beautifully done and it worked well, but attempts to tinker with it since then in 1969 and 1984 have been less successful. And now the contracting out procedure, I think, is bizarrely complex. And um, I think that could be simplified right down to a few words. Interim rent ridiculously complicated. I, I just get rid of all of that. I don't see the need for it. And then when it comes to rent, well, you know, this is another bugbear of mine, Sarah, this this notion that when you're trying to work out a rent payable for a new property, you literally, literally worded the 1954 Act does not disregard the lack of inducements for new lettings. And that means a sitting tenant who needs no rent-free period will get one. That's the way judges have been interpreting this. I think it's wrong, personally. I think it's a misreading of the Act, but it seems to be what all county court judges do. And if they're going to carry on doing that, then I think the Act should be amended to make sure they can't do it. So lots to do, but it's all of a sort of fiddling about um, nature. I think, broadly speaking, the Act works well. I mean, I would go further and abolish the whole thing altogether, because I think in today's market, where um, demand and supply are in a very different place to where they were 
1954. I, I just don't think you need statutory protection for business tenancies, but I know that that will cause a storm of protests from other sectors of, of the market. All right. Two last questions for you, if I may. Um, the first one, um, when you look back on the year, what do you think has been the most significant legislative change? Uh, well, I think probably the Building Safety Act in terms of um, numbers of cases that it will spawn. Yeah. Um, th that probably. I think one of the um, the opportunities missed, I'm sorry, it's not a question you asked me, but no, I want, no. <laughs> is, is the... Um, one of the King's speech items was uh, the arbitration bill, which the Law Commission has been consulting on. And the the, the proposals, I think, were all about making um, international arbitration work better in Britain. So it's a big money spinner for Britain, as it is. And I think um, the Law Commission were not overtly trying to make sure that that continued to be the case. But anyway, that was a lot of what was behind the, the consultation. And when we responded to the consultation in chambers, we said, well, what about the domestic market? My my chief complaint about the domestic arbitration market, which has a huge role to play in property arbitrations, you know, not just rent review, but development agreements and agriculture, is that it's all behind a veil. We can't see awards because they're always confidential. And our proposal to the Law Commission was make it the other way around make it that it's open, awards are published, which is what the coronavirus uh, commercial rent recovery legislation did. I said, you know, remove confidentiality. If the parties want it, they can contract for it, but otherwise make it open and then we can all learn um, because there's very little learning to be done in the arbitration market at the moment. And I think that's a big shame. I think you've answered actually my last question. My last question was going to be, if there was one legislative change that you'd put on your Christmas wish list, what would it be? And I'm guessing it's going to be arbitration proposals. Absolutely right, Sarah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much as ever, Guy. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today and, and to work with you again over the last 12 months and um, look forward to hearing many of your thoughts again in 2024. So thank you so much for your well, time. Sarah, from my, from my point of view, it's such fun working with you and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. That was In on the Act, the final In on the Act of 2023 from EG with Sarah Jackman. For previous episodes, see the in on the Act archive at popbean.com and for more on legislative developments, the EG Radius archive at egi.co.uk.